open up your Bibles or get to your phone and get to your Bible app, we are digging back into the book of Habakkuk. And if you haven't been with us, we are on a four-week journey to answer this question. How do I live by faith when I have hard questions for God? How do I live by faith when I have unanswered questions with God? That's what Habakkuk's going through. And if you have been with us, you'll remember week one, Timmy Lopez came and he talked us through Habakkuk 1. And this is where Habakkuk says, God, I am living in Judah. Your people are wicked. You need to do something about it. And he's asking God these questions. Why would you allow wicked to go forth? God answers and he says, okay, I'll do something with Judah. I'm going to send the Chaldeans, this nation of Babylon. I'm going to send them to Judah to destroy the wicked. Guess what? Habakkuk didn't love that answer because he's saying, well, wait, we are wicked as Judah, but Babylon? They're even more wicked than us. How are you going to use a more wicked nation to cast judgment on your people? And so Timmy helped us actually work through how do we ask questions to God? Like, how do we approach God humbly and not shake our fists at him, but say, you're God, but I have honest questions for you. And then Nathan came last week and walked us through Habakkuk 2, where we got to see God's response, which is this. Habakkuk, guess what? You need to be quiet. You need to be silent before me. You need to wait on me, because I will enact perfect justice. I am a God of justice, and I know what I'm doing. You might not see it yet, but I'm asking you to trust me, okay? Maybe this sounds pretty familiar to you, right? Something goes on in life, and you come to God, and you're like, hey, God, I don't get it. I have a question for you. Why are you allowing this to happen? Maybe you're even arrogant, and you're saying, God, I don't think it should be happening this way, and you need to change it. And his response to you is essentially, I am doing something about it. I'm just not doing it the way you want it done. And you don't like that. And I don't either. You've been there before. And this is actually a really present reality in my life. So I just want you guys to know that this is not just something I'm standing up here and saying, oh, let me teach you about Habakkuk 3. This is for my soul as much as it is for yours. Because my wife and I have been fostering uh, two baby boys, a 16-month-old and a 6-month-old. I'm going to try not to cry. Um, We've been fostering these two little boys. Came to us at 7 months old and 2 months old. And let me just tell you, they are very easy to fall head over heels in love with. Very easy to fall head over heels in love with, and that's where I'm at. But the hard thing about foster care is the goal is reunification, to get them back to their biological parents. But if that's not possible, then the question is, where do these kids land, right? Are they a long-term fit for me and my wife, or are they going to go somewhere else? And honestly, I don't know the answer to that. And I have just been asking God, like, why? Why would you allow this to happen? Why would you allow me to fall head over heels in love if this is not a permanent solution? And if this isn't a permanent solution, like, would you just show me that quickly so I don't have to hurt the way I'm hurting right now? 
And to this day, there's still no answer for me. And I'm left just asking this question, how do I live by faith in a difficult season? How do I move forward trusting God when I just don't seem to see him at work, at least not as evidently as I would love to see him at work? And so for you, maybe you're walking through something similar tonight. You're walking through a difficult season, and you're asking the same question I am. How can I trust a God when I don't really see him at work in my current circumstances? How do I live by faith? Or maybe you're not in a difficult season, but maybe you're coming out of a difficult season. I don't know if you've heard the saying before. It's like, you're either in a valley, you're heading out of a valley, or you're heading into a valley. Because that's part of life. We go through struggles. We go through difficult seasons. And so I want all of us in this room collectively to say, we need to take this seriously tonight. Because if you're not in a difficult season, maybe this message is for you to take hold of and put in your back pocket because a hard season is coming for you and you don't even know it yet. But you need to know this truth in order that you may live by faith when the difficult season comes. Okay, so Habakkuk 3, how do I live by faith in a season that is full of trouble? And the way is not out of it, but through it. That's where we're going tonight. So Habakkuk 3, verse 1, we're going to slow roll on the front end. Uh, Verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shagianoth. Anybody know what that means? Yeah, didn't think so. It means he is praying, and it's in the form of a song. Shagianoth is saying to a tune, to a musical setting. So this is a song, and I'm going to try and walk through it true to form, but you're not going to hear me sing, because I'm sparing all of you. Um, Here's the deal. Verse 2, which I'm going to read next, is called a refrain. This is like the chorus. So we're going to see verse 2 repeated over and over again tonight as I read through this. I want to stay true to form. And read it to you just like Habakkuk would have sang this to God. So verse 2 says, O Lord, this is Habakkuk praying, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk is beginning this journey in his prayer to say, I don't love my current circumstances, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to reflect on what I know to be true of God. So if you're, taking, if you're a note taker, at the top of your page, I want you to just write the word remember. Remember. That is what Habakkuk is doing in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. He is remembering. And we're going to keep coming back to this. He says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. He's looking back and he's saying, God, I know who you are, and I want to see you do it again. And this saying, in wrath, remember mercy, means he understands that God is, is justly angry at his people. And he's praying for mercy Mercy is this idea of, I'm not getting what I deserve. Here is why God is allowed to have wrath on you and me. 
He is holy. Holiness means perfection. He is without error. And you and me, we miss the mark. And not by a little bit. We miss the mark by a lot. And so he is looking at himself and his people Judah and the Chaldeans, and he's saying, oh, Lord, (laughs) I know that we deserve your wrath, but I'm praying that you would spare us, that you would preserve our life. That's his prayer. We're going to see it repeated over and over again, but we're going to jump in to the first stanza, starting in verse 3, and you're going to see this word repeated, selah. And what selah means is to pause, to consider, and to actually allow what is being said to draw you back to a place of praise. And so again, in order to stay true to form, as I read it, when I get to the word of selah, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to pause, and allow us to just sit in the text before I continue reading. So um, just so you guys know, that's what's coming. It's going to be an awkward silence, but you need to ponder what's being said here, okay? God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His ways were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. You're probably listening to that and saying, what the heck just happened? (laughs) That was what I thought the first time I read that. What the heck just happened? And for you and me, this doesn't mean a whole lot unless we know our Bibles. But to Habakkuk and to his people, this meant a ton. Because he is referencing Mount Paran. And Mount Paran was a a pivotal place in the history of God's people. This is where God established his covenant with his people. And actually, they were enslaved to Egypt. And when they got out of Egypt, they found refuge at Mount Paran. And Mount Paran is the site of Mount Sinai as well, where God came and he gave his commandments to his people. And that was important because this is not just a cosmic guessing game of what God wants from us. The law was God's way of saying, I'm going to let you, as my people, know what I expect of you. And that was a huge gift to God's people. Habakkuk is saying, rather than focusing on my circumstances, because Judah's about to be destroyed, you guys. He says, rather than focusing on my circumstances, I'm going to look back at how you have been faithful to your people over the history of time. And he specifically focuses in 
on Israel and the Exodus. Here's what's happened. Israel ends up in Egypt and because of a famine, and they are flourishing as a people. Pharaoh gets pissed, right? He gets scared because Israel is rising up, and he's on a power trip. He's like, I don't want Israel to get powerful, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to enslave them. I'm going to make them do slave labor. Israel ends up enslaved to Egypt, and there's this guy named Moses. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him. Moses becomes an instrument in the hand of God to say, I'm going to use you to redeem Israel, to get my people out of Egypt where they have been enslaved. And here's what happens. Moses goes to Pharaoh on behalf of God, and he starts to plead with him. And he says, hey, if you let my people go, great. If not, this is what's coming. Anybody heard the song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh? How's it go? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby, let my people go. Okay, maybe not. Okay, <laughs> miss, swing and a miss. Thought you guys would know that. Um, Pharaoh says no. And so you see over and over and over again, God is using miraculous works over creation. He turns water into blood. He sends lice and flies. He casts disease amongst their livestock. He sends locusts in to devour their crop and even says, I'm going to allow the firstborn of Egypt to die. But as for you, Israel, I'm giving you this sign. If you would kill a lamb and you would put its blood above your doorpost, you will be spared. Okay? Pharaoh gets freaked out because everything that God promises comes true and he says, all right, Moses, get out of here. Get out of Egypt. So what do they do? They walk out. They're free. But Pharaoh changes his mind. And he starts to hunt down Israel. He's like, nope, running after you. Guess what? Israel gets to the Red Sea. And what does God do? He splits the sea. God has power over creation because he made it. He has authority. It's his. And he says, okay, I'll part the Red Sea. Israel marches through. And as Egypt goes in, the waves crash over them and destroy them. God has power over his creation. What happens? Israel walks through the wilderness. You would think, oh man, God's been faithful. I'm going to be a people that's faithful to a God that's faithful to me, right? They mess up. They make mistakes, just like you and me. But God, again, is faithful enough. He guides them by a cloud during the day to protect them from the heat and by a pillar of fire at night to give them sight. He even shakes the earth. So in here, you read about him crushing these eternal mountains. This is where the people of that time would worship false idols. And God would shake the mountains to say, I made those mountains. Look at me. I'm the everlasting. This mountain isn't everlasting. Your idols aren't everlasting. I am. Look at me. They continue to wander. They get to the edge of the promised land. And what happens? As God's people begin to march in, we're now in the book of Joshua, God stops the Jordan River. 
another miraculous act where there's this wide river and he allows it to part so that the people can enter the promised land. Several chapters later, they're getting ready to fight the Amorites and God allows the sun and the moon to literally stand still so that Joshua can see victory over the Amorites. In Judges 5, God gives Israel victory over the Canaanites by a way of a rainstorm. It causes the river of Kishon to overflow. He uses a flash flood to give his people victory. 2 Samuel 5, God uses the sound of wind in the trees to allow Israel to sneak up on the Philistines and capture them, to be victorious. These stories go on and on and on and on. For thousands of years, God has been faithful to his people. And not a perfect people, you guys. Not a perfect people. A people that have shook their fist at him. A people that have rebelled against him. A people that were helpless without him interceding. But he's been faithful. And so what Habakkuk is doing is saying, I know right now my judgment is clouded. Because I'm in the midst of a trial. So rather than making a decision right now, I'm going to remember who you were when I had clear sight. What comes to mind for me is this whole debacle of before you go to bed, setting an alarm. You guys know where I'm going with this? Any snoozers in the room? Okay, I'm right there with you. Here's how it plays out. I'm getting ready for bed at night. I'm like, all right, Jordan, you need to be at the church at 730 and I start to work backwards, right? I have a five-minute drive into work. It's going to take me 20 minutes to brush my teeth, get dressed, and shower. It's going to take me 20 minutes to make breakfast, coffee, and eat it. And I map it out, and I know exactly the time that I need to set my alarm for. And I'm a punk, so I set two. I set one like 15 minutes too early so that I can hit snooze once. Anybody else ever done that? Yeah. Sweet. What happens when your second alarm goes off? You instantly have miraculous superpowers to say, I know more now because I'm half asleep than I did last night when I did an algorithm to figure out how much time I had. (laughs) Right? You've been there before. How does that work? Not great. Right? You end up having to skip something. You don't shower, and then you show up to work, and people are like, bro, are you okay? Like, are you going through something? It's like, yeah, I thought I had time but I didn't. The reality is, you guys, we cannot afford to do that with God. If we want to endure, if we want to make it through difficult seasons, we can't be the people that are making the decisions when we're half asleep. When we're in the midst of a trial and we have clouded judgment, our perspective is distorted. We have to look back and we have to say, okay, God, who do I know you to be? one way that you can do that is actually being in your Bible and saying, God, this is who you've been for thousands of years. But also you can make it personal. You can say, God, I've seen how you've been faithful to me. I remember the times that I've struggled before and I made it through. By your power, I know I made it through because of you. But even as I was preparing this, I just had the the nudge that there are people in this room that you would say, Jordan, tell me one time God has been faithful to me. Yeah, sure, maybe God's been faithful to you, 
But God's never been faithful to me, and I want to let you know that that's a complete lie. God has been super faithful to you, even if you haven't yet recognized it. If you are in this room tonight, God has been faithful to you. If you are in America, even if you are one of the poorest people in America, you are in the top 8 to 15% of wealth in the world. If you are able to read this book or understand what I'm saying, you are some of the smartest people that have ever walked the face of the planet. If you are in this room, you have more religious freedom than at least three billion people on the face of the planet today. If you are not currently at war, imprisoned, or starving to death, you are better off than at least 500 million people in the world today. And simply being alive, you are more fortunate than the over one million people that died last week. God has been faithful to you. And I believe that if you're in this room tonight, he is faithful to bring you to this point for a very poignant purpose. And we're going to see that in the continued passage of Habakkuk 3. So we have to start to work through, God has been faithful to his people Amen? God's been faithful to his people, but what has he done to be faithful to his people? He has used wrath. He has used wrath. And in American Christianity, we don't love that because we want to say God is love. God is comfortable. And I don't believe in a God that could have wrath because I believe in a God that has love. Well, we're going to dig back into Habakkuk 3 and see what he has to say about that. Says, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. What is the purpose of God's wrath? That's what Habakkuk is talking about here. What is the purpose of God's wrath? You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Refrain, chorus. O Lord, I've heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. You guys, I'm here to tell you that wrath and love can and actually must coexist. They must go together. Hear me. If I love Jewish people... I have to hate the Holocaust, right? If I love Jewish people, I have to hate the Holocaust. If I love my wife and my boys, I have to hate any evil that would threaten or come against them, right? We have brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, specifically in Syria, in Iraq, in Central African Republic, they are being mass genocide for following Jesus. 
And as much as we want to have this comfortable Christianity that says God is only love, their only hope is that they follow a God of justice because they're being oppressed, they're being killed for following this Jesus that you and me try to comfortably follow at a distance. They are clinging to the wrath of God, knowing that the suffering that they are enduring right now is temporary, and that God is full of justice, and that he is coming, and that he is wrathful and loving. Because here is the purpose of God's wrath, to save his anointed. To save his anointed. Where were you guys during derecho? I don't know about you guys, I was on top of Mount Mercy Hill. I was eating a Chick-fil-A number one meal with a Diet Dr. Pepper. Yep, people don't forget. And I was maybe too nonchalant in the moment. I'm being honest. I was just like, oh, thunderstorm, been there, this will blow through. Um, It did blow through. (laughs) And it looked quite different than what I was expecting. Because an hour later, I'm with our staff team, And we're starting to drive back into Cedar Rapids, and all I see is destruction. Uprooted trees, destruction, garages crumbled. But you know what God saw? He saw one of your peers in this room, Carly Knockle, calling out to God and praising him for the first time as her Lord and Savior when all I could see was an uprooted tree in destruction, God saw redemption in Carly. For the salvation of his anointed, he allowed something like derecho to happen so that Carly would even be able to see her need for Jesus. That's amazing. And Jesus, too, saw a tree, a cross, And what this cross looked like for him was destruction. It looked like wrath. Because as he went to the cross, you guys, he took the sins on himself of you and me. That's a big deal. That the wrath that you and me would deserve for falling short, Jesus assumed. He took it on himself. And he bore the wrath of God. That is a very big deal. But the sweet thing is, again, wrath and love are not at odds. They coexist. They must go together. Jesus assumed the wrath of God. Wrath. The good news is, God himself took it. Love. The punishment that you and me deserve, Jesus took upon himself. That is love. For the salvation of God's anointed. For you and me, Jesus saw the cross because he saw redemption on the other side. Amen? That's really, really good news. The purpose of God's wrath is for the salvation of his anointed. We're going to finish out here. The rest of verse 13, it says, You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the, head of his, the heads of his own warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses. The surging 
of mighty waters. This is such sweet scripture again. Genesis 3, 15. Many of you probably know of it as Adam and Eve sinning, right? They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as God intercedes, he says in Genesis 3, 15, this promise. The seed of woman, Jesus Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. Will crush the head of the serpent. You guys see that in Habakkuk 3? That it's not just Jesus taking on the wrath that we deserve. He rose again. He defeated death. With what? How did Jesus defeat death? With death itself. Far greater than Israel defeating its enemies by its enemies turning on each other and using their own arrows, God crushes the head of Satan by saying, guess what? The wages of sin is death. You are out to kill my people. But I'm going to save them. You know how? Dying. And I'm going to defeat death by rising again three days later. And he did it. He defeated sin and death and Satan. Using Satan's own weapon against him. That's amazing. Think of 1 Corinthians 15. It'll be up on the screen. If you guys are tracking with us at Veritas, we're in this series of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is reciting this to the Corinthian church. He says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, therefore, Christians... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Death has been defeated. Your circumstances, your trial are temporary. Jesus has come to declare victory. That is very, very good news. And Habakkuk is in the midst of what appears to be an imminent death. And what is he doing? He's remembering. He's looking back. God, you've been faithful to Israel. You have remembered your promises to your people. You have come and rescued and given victory to a helpless people before. God, would you do it again? In wrath, would you remember your mercy to your people? One of the study tools I had over the last couple weeks said it like this. Remembering the past gives an anchor to the present while the faithful wait for the future. I'll say it again. Remembering the past gives an anchor to the present while the faithful wait for the future. Here's what you need to know tonight. In tough times, look back at God's faithfulness to move forward in faith. Look back at God's faithfulness to move forward in faith. And Habakkuk had to do the work of looking back 800 years. Okay? 
he remembered that his story was this small in this entire redemptive narrative of God at work. God, you have been faithful to them again and again and again, and I know that you're true to your promises, so you're going to be faithful to your people from generation to generation. And even though I can't seem to see how you're at work right now, I'm going to trust that that is true because I've seen it over and over and over again. Look back at God's faithfulness, Salt Company. That's what you need to do. We need to remember that we serve a faithful God who's been faithful to his people, who will be faithful again to you and to me. What does this look like to apply to our lives? First, we need to repent. This idea of turning around. Because guess what? God is full of wrath. And love, yes, but God is full of wrath and he will not tolerate wickedness and evil. He is not okay with you worshiping a false god. And if you are looking in at Habakkuk 3, an appropriate prayer for you is to say, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. God, have mercy on a sinner like me. My only hope is that you will love me that you would spare me because I am helpless. Would you repent? Secondly, read. Read your Bible. If you are in a difficult season, you need to be reminded of truth. And God's word is truth. We see that in John 17. Jesus is praying, God, remind them of the truth. Your word is truth. We need truth in difficult seasons because there's a lot of lies being thrown at us. And you and me in difficult seasons need to look at the big picture. We need to look back thousands of years and say, God, look at how faithful you've been to your people. And then a third application is to simply reflect. Spend time dwelling on God's faithfulness to you to reflect, to say, in a difficult season, in my prayer, I'm going to just talk to God about all the ways he's been faithful to me. Not because he needs reminded, because you need reminded. I need reminded, right? When I talk to people that are getting a terrible diagnosis, right, diagnosed with cancer, one of the things that I do is I look at God's word, and I'm like, God, I see that you can heal, right? I've seen you heal the paralytic. God, I've seen you actually storm into Lazarus's tomb and call him out from the dead. I have seen you heal me. God, you can do this, right? I'm reminding myself of God's faithfulness. I look back at bad breakups that I had when I was in high school or college, and in those moments, I'm like, great, I'm going to be single forever. I'm despised. Look at me. Yeah, you've probably been there. And I don't mean to make light of breakups. I know that they can be difficult. But I look at my wife. I'm like, God, how faithful have you been to me? That you knew better than to let me marry so-and-so. But God, you saved me from that in order that I could marry Ellie. I'm seeing the big picture as I look back and remember. So whether it's a bad breakup, a bad grade, or a diagnosis, or even death, you guys. 
you can reflect and you can remind yourself of God's faithfulness to you. And one thing that I want to just urge you to do, and I want to jump in with you, is to start recording your prayers. To start to, as you take prayer requests at Connection Group, and as you begin to pray for the people around you or pray for yourself, that you begin to write down the things you're praying about. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to look back months, maybe years from now, and you're going to see this journal, and you are going to be blown away at God's faithfulness to you. If you would be able to look back and say, wow, in March of 2021, I was praying for this. Look at God. Look at how he showed up. And what would happen, Salt Company? We would become a people that are stable in difficult seasons because we're looking back. We're seeing God's faithfulness, and in difficult seasons, you and me aren't going to be tossed to and fro by our difficult seasons. We're going to have stability because we have Christ as the firm foundation under our feet. And in and through difficulties, we're actually going to have the opportunity to share Jesus with other people. People do not understand how my wife and I are able to do what we are doing right now in foster care. And in many ways, I don't get it either. But what I can tell them is, it's through the gospel of Christ. I look at God's faithfulness to me. I look at the fact that I was a, a helpless orphan before him and God moved towards me and ransomed me. Why would I not do that for the, these kids? Why would I not move towards them? I'm able to use a difficult circumstance to share the hope of Christ with them, to boast in Jesus. One of the most powerful stories I've ever heard of this is a pastor in our network. His name's Drew Stevenson. Um, back in 2018, in February, he had um, a baby boy named Jude. And uh, pregnancy was fine, childbearing went fine, but within moments, Jude was in a warmer and he wasn't breathing. And come to find out, Jude had a rare heart condition. And so from February to July, the Stevensons were in the hospital. They were watching these intense surgeries go down. And Jude passed away in July of 2018 at the age of five months old. And there's a video online of, of Drew and his wife talking through um, all that they went through. And Drew, Drew said this. He said, soon after the initial procedure... I remember draping myself over my son, asking God, why do I have to watch my son suffer? And then I was reminded, God knows. He knows what it's like to watch his son suffer. He understands our pain because he designed the universe so that he would suffer more than anyone else. So I can trust that he is going to use me watching my son suffer for a great and lasting purpose. If Drew can do that and watching the death of his five-month-old son 
What about you and me? I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what valley you're in. But I know the God who knows the valley you're in. And he is faithful to you. If you would do the work of remembering his faithfulness to you. Pray with me. God, we come before you knowing, knowing well, God, that we have missed the mark in our lives. That we've been angry, that we've been bitter, that we've been jealous, that we've been greedy, that we've shook our fist at you as we've settled for smaller things. But God, in your wrath, remember mercy. Jesus, thank you that you came. You looked at the tree of death and you said yes. You died in our place. You took the wrath that we deserve so that we could experience mercy. Jesus, that you rose from the grave to declare victory over death so that we could have life with you. God, I pray for us, for our students, for our staff in difficult seasons. God, would you give us the gift of faith to see your faithfulness from eternity past to eternity future so that we can have a persistent joy. Give us eyes to see you, Jesus, as we continue in worship. Give us the gift of faith so that we can worship you freely. Pray this in your name.